can, open your Bible to Matthew 13. We're going to pick up where we left off. This morning we're going to read nearly a chapter of Matthew, and we have good reasons to do it. The 13th chapter of Matthew is a masterpiece. It represents a complex braid of scenes and stories and bits of dialogue that, when woven together nicely, paint a striking portrait of the misunderstood kingdom of Jesus. It's a really lovely piece of writing, and you can't quite grasp the whole without seeing how the parts work together. We began exploring this passage last week, and if you weren't here, that's okay. Uh, Here's a quick summary of what we learned. Um, First, we explored why Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. We discovered that parables work a bit like fables for his followers and a bit like riddles for the crowds. In other words, parables are a tool in the hands of Jesus to accomplish the will of God. For those with hardened hearts, they hide the truth in plain sight. But for those whose eyes have been opened, parables reveal the the hidden secrets of the kingdom. We explored how Matthew's writing illustrates this point nicely. We noted that Jesus leaves the crowds without understanding and leads his followers into the lake house in order to reveal the secrets of the kingdom. The audience shifts dramatically from thousands on a beach to a few on a dusty lake house floor. So the sandy crowds and the dusty disciples operate as metaphors. And these scenes begin to shift our expectations about the kingdom and to illuminate the teachings of Jesus. But we haven't yet explored the parables themselves. That's what we're going to do this week. Four stories told in quick succession. Each of them seem to have something to say about the kingdom. But how do they work together? And what do they mean? And how should they change the way we think and the way we live? That's the work of this morning. I want to begin by reading each parable again. And then we'll tackle the parables in turn. Because we covered a lot of this chapter last week, I'm going to jump over a few sections. So follow me on the screen. We're starting in verse 3. A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then jumping down to verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another case sixty, and in another thirty. Right, jumping down to Matthew thirteen twenty four, 
He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all garden plants and has become a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Skipping down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the fields. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire... So will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So one of the things we noticed last week was that the disciples didn't hesitate to ask the teacher for help to understand his stories. So I can't help but think that the best first step is to do the same. Let's pray together. To you, Father, belong all the secrets of the kingdom, and you show them to whom you will. And you've asked us generously to approach you and ask for help when we have need. And we do have need this morning, Lord. We ask that you would open our eyes, give us ears that hear, soften our hearts, and teach us the secrets of the kingdom that are hidden in these stories. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so a few first impressions before we actually get into the parables. First, all of these stories revolve around situations that everybody understands. This is an agrarian society, which is a fancy way to say that most people work with their hands on farms and in fields. It's no exaggeration to say that every child in the crowd would be familiar with seeds sown in wheat fields, weeds in gardens, leaven and flour. It is supposed that 90% of the Roman Empire was agrarian, which means that Even the wealthy people were surrounded by the agrarian society in which they lived. I think it's worth highlighting this for a handful of reasons. First, God is always in the business of teaching. And we're rarely in the business of listening. 
How many times in the Psalms or in the Gospels or in Paul's writing or in the Proverbs does God's word direct our attention to things that we see every day? With the basic expectation that we'll, we will have thought about them. Simple things, everyday things ought to point us to the profound, to the divine. We should see the flowers and think about God's provision. We should see the fields and think about gospel opportunities. We should see the sun rising and reflect on God's steadfast love. How much of your life is merely background? That's a problem. Second, I I think it's important to highlight because Jesus' teaching is approachable. He expects and invites children, not in the figurative sense, like literally kids are there in the crowds listening to him teach. He addresses farmers and smiths and servants. And while he disrupts our expectations and while he forces us to reconsider the scriptures, he does it simply with words that everybody understands and ideas that everyone's familiar with. I think that we should model this in our teaching We should labor to understand the kingdom of God so profoundly that we can articulate its truths simply. Third, Jesus' generation saw a wide chasm between the religious elite and the common people. The students of popular rabbis were expected to have the Torah memorized. From youth, they were set apart from the crowds, driven with back-breaking discipline to know the law, to have answers for every theological question, to draw broad fences around the law and to abide by them, and to rigorously avoid the unclean and associate only with the holy. They were, in a word, set apart from the common man. This was high society. And Jesus could have entered into that society, engaged with that society, taught like they taught, held to their social distinctions, but he doesn't. When we encounter the Pharisees in Jesus' ministry, they're coming to him. And that just seems like Jesus, doesn't it? The Son of God stepped down, took on flesh, humbled himself, was born in a barn, son of a carpenter. That's the inverse of the Pharisees' model of ministry, and that's what your ministry and service and faith should look like. If your ministry looks more like that of the Pharisees rather than that of Christ, you should make some changes because you're in bad company. All right, so that's just a few first thoughts. Let's uh, dive into the first parable. Pick up at Matthew 13, 3. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they didn't have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So there's literally no guesswork here because Jesus provides an interpretation which we'll read in a moment. But before that, a few notes. First, what's described here is called broadcast sowing. It's basically the way to sow fields in ancient Palestine. It's not difficult to imagine. Strapped to the sower's shoulder is a sackcloth of grain, typically barley or wheat. And as the sower paces through his field, he pulls handfuls of seed and he scatters them broadly to give ample opportunity for as many seeds as possible to plant roots in good soil. The seeds which land on the path 
really don't require an explanation. Casting seeds on the edge of a field would naturally lead to grain falling on beaten paths, and these would have no opportunity to bear fruit. But the shallow soil that Jesus refers to is a common scenario in Galilee, where the bedrock is often close to the surface. Because the ground remains warm in these cases, seed would quickly sprout, but it would wither as soon as as the seasonal temperature rose. So it didn't have access to water because it couldn't plant deeper roots. In the case of the third soil, the problem isn't so much the ground, but the surroundings. Fertile soil draws all sorts of vegetation, some of which is hostile to the wheat and barley as they're competing for sunlight and moisture. In the case of thorns, these competing plants are soaking up moisture, casting shade, and literally choking the crops like a parasitic vine. And fifth, I'm just assuming that you, like me, are entirely unaware of how much grain a well-rooted plant should yield. I'm not from the country. I'm from the city. So if you told me it yielded a thousandfold, I would say, okay, yeah, cool. And have no clue that that was entirely unrealistic. So what you need to know about the hundredfold yield is it's a crazy huge harvest. And in fact, you get a signal in the scriptures about this harvest when the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are being told in Genesis. One of the stories, I mean, there's relatively uh, little attention given to Isaac next to Abraham and Jacob. But one of the stories that Moses tells in Genesis about Isaac is that one year in the land of the Philistines, he planted uh, and his crop was a hundredfold. It was so amazing that it was worth mentioning in a relatively short summary of this guy's life. It's an extraordinary harvest. And it's one of the rel- relatively small handfuls of, of events that Moses reflects on. But against that backdrop, even a thirtyfold harvest is a really great year. Right? You have a couple consecutive thirtyfold harvests, you don't have a whole lot to worry about. All right, so let's move on to Jesus' explanation of the story. Pick it up in 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Okay, so at this point it's important to pay attention to what Jesus says represents what. Because... Not a few readers step away confused, and it's easy to misread this story. The seed represents the word of the kingdom. It's the gospel. And you shouldn't have a hard time imagining what this seed casting looks like because we've been watching Jesus' ministry unfold. Gospel proclamation in every corner of the promised land. He's been preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and we're reflecting on that mission since chapter 4. In fact, John's message and Jesus' message seem to be indistinguishable. They're both preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So, so from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, we're given a picture of what this seed casting looks like in the ministry of John and then in the, in the ministry of Jesus. 
And just like Jesus and just like John, the sower is scattering the seed of the word generously. And it falls on all sorts of hearts. That's the second relationship that Jesus establishes. Those who hear the word are represented by soil. This is where sometimes we get a bit confused because we like to think about the hearers as the plants. And that's not, that's not what's going on. That's not the story that Jesus tells. The seed is the word. And the rooted plant is the word maturing in fertile soil, in softened hearts. And the fruit produced is the result of the word fully matured in fertile soil, fostering faithful works in the lives of God's people. The word, rooted and active in the softened hearts of men, unrestrained by the temptation of the flesh, is what bears fruit. In a word picture, the crop, in this word picture, the crop is the word at work. You're not the crop. You're the soil. So the question becomes, what sort of soil am I? There are four types of soil mentioned. In the first case, the soil is hardened. This, Jesus says, represents those who hear and don't understand. And we can surmise from the context of this passage that the failure to understand doesn't relate to the complexity of the message, but rather to the willfully blind eyes and the willfully stopped up ears of those with hardened hearts that we just reflected on in Isaiah 6. In the second case, the soil seems to be fertile, but because of the hardened rocky ground beneath it, it can't root. So as soon as the heat builds, it withers. Jesus explains that many will receive the word of the kingdom with joy, but that joy will be overcome by tribulation and persecution. Hard things. As the word of God falls on many hearts like these, a joyful response and what seems to be rapid growth are illusory. Because the hardened bedrock underneath that apparent fertile soil is just as impenetrable as the beaten path we just looked at. From an agricultural point of view, both the beaten path and the rocky ground are equally useless. The third soil is fertile enough and the seed develops strong roots. Yet the thorns surrounding that seed choke the crop so that it produces no fruit. Jesus says that these thorns represent the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. The point here is simple. Hearts that harbor the cares of this world don't have room for the hope of the gospel. Let me repeat that. It's painful to hear, but especially in a context like ours. You need to hear it. Hearts that harbor the cares of the world don't have room for the hope of the gospel. Do you you remember the story of the, the wealthy guy who seems to have a firm grasp of the gospel? He's like, what do I do to be saved? He's like, I've done all these things from my youth. And Jesus says, one more thing. One more thing. Sell all your stuff and come follow me. And he went away what? Sad. Because where was his heart? It was in the world. That's what we're talking about here. I want you to notice something. I'm going to go out on a limb. At face value, I don't think this is heinous sin. It doesn't seem like that to me. This doesn't seem like family-ruining adultery. This doesn't seem like life-crippling alcohol addiction or career-ruining corporate embezzlement. This seems like distraction. This seems like a vague interest in yet another promotion. Maybe joining the boating club. Maybe upgrading that television. 
Maybe a longer vacation, a more exotic winter trip. This seems like the distant promises of this world that haunt the tempted heart. And it suffocates gospel hope. You can't serve two masters, you remember? You can't foster in your heart a hope for the world's wares and a hope for kingdom citizenship. Choose one. Choose one. So clearly the first and the second soil were worthless. Here's a painful question. What about the third one? To the farmer is the crop that grows high and green yet bears no fruit. Any help at all? No. It isn't. To this point, every seed that has been cast has failed. And that's half the point of this parable. As Jesus tells this story, we're supposed to question the judgment of that sower. Because he's not exactly batting a thousand. Every seed that's cast thus far is lost. These are missed opportunities. In each case, it seems like it would have been better for the sower not to cast the seed at all. Yet watch what happens with the fertile soil. Thirtyfold, sixtyfold, one hundredfold. An extraordinary yield, a life-changing yield. This is what happens when the gospel roots in hearts with eyes that see, ears that hear, hearts that understand. Hearts that understand. Note that Jesus only acknowledges understanding in the hearts that aren't hardened, that aren't shallow, that aren't tempted by the pleasures of the world. Look back at the prophecy of Isaiah, a few few verses prior to these. And 14 is where I'm going to pick up. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their hearts, and what? Understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal him. In tandem, understanding, turning, being healed. That's the context of Jesus' teaching. So what's unique about the fourth soil? Understanding. And what's the path to understanding? Open eyes, hearing ears, softened hearts. You'll notice that if you read enough about this passage, some scholars attempt to ask the question, which of these soils is actually saved? And the presupposition behind that question is that many people believe but don't bear fruit. The idea is that you can know the gospel and love Christ but be overcome by your situation, by the idols in your heart. And a lot of people think that these people are saved. They're just not given as great a reward as those believers who bear fruit. So listen, no disrespect, but that's a really bad reading of this passage. It's a shameful reading of this passage. Jesus is a careful teacher, and Matthew is a careful writer. So when Jesus, citing the prophet Isaiah, clarifies that the prerequisite to true understanding is open eyes and ears that hear and a softened heart, and when Jesus says that the gospel that bears fruit is planted exclusively in the heart that truly understands, there isn't any more room for speculation. 
Fruit is what happens when open eyes see Christ. Fruit is what happens when ears that hear listen to the gospel. Fruit is what happens when softened hearts encounter the gospel of the kingdom. Always. There are no exceptions. You are not an exception to that rule. So if you're out there feeling comforted because you've said a prayer or because you believe some things about Jesus, but you're not bearing the fruit of repentance and the fruit of good works and daily growing in love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and goodness and self-control, you should be terrified. Praise God for that terror. Sometimes His means to redeem His people is to make them terrified about their failure to bear fruit. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's read the next three parables. They're actually bracketed together, which is why we're reading them together. Pick it up in 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servant of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn." He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. It's interesting about these stories that Jesus gives an interpretation for the first, but not the second and the third. And that, I think, is because they're all headed in the same direction. A few notes before we dive into the, interpret- in, in, into the interpretation text. In the first story, a man sows good seed in his field. And shortly afterwards, when the servants are sleeping, an enemy sows weeds in the same fertile soil. This, by the way, happened so often in ancient Rome that there was a law forbidding it as an act of vengeance. See, there's a weed card dar- called Darnell, or, and I'm going to butcher this if you know Latin, I'm sorry. It's Lolium Temulentium, Telementum. You can, I'll, you can look it up, just Google it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> this weed looks just like wheat initially. But when the ear appears, a trained eye can recognize the distinction. But by that point, it's sown, if it's sown alongside the wheat, the roots have so tangled themselves with the wheat that to uproot that weed would compromise the harvest. Even more sinister, the fruit of the Darnell plant is poisonous so that if it were harvested alongside the wheat, the whole batch of grain would be ruined. Were it ground and baked, the result would be disastrous. So to preserve the harvest, the weeds had to be collected and bundled away from the wheat and then burned to prevent further compromise. Only then could the wheat be harvested. The second parable is less a story than a word picture. A mustard seed was the smallest seed 
that ancient Palestinian farmers would have been familiar with. Yet when planted in fertile soil, the seed could grow as high as 12 feet, a small tree sturdy enough to hold nests of birds. The third parable is another word picture and perhaps the most familiar to us. Just a touch of leaven is added to around 30 liters of flour. That's a lot. It's enough to feed around 100 people. So if you didn't know anything about how bread was made, the leaven added to that lump would seem ridiculously insufficient. But given time, the whole lump is leavened. Tracking? Let's read uh, Christ's interpretation of the weeds and the wheat. Pick it up in 36. He left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. All right, let's start at the beginning. In this story, the seed is not the gospel, but the sons of the kingdom. Pivoting off the reference to Isaiah's prophecy, these are those whose eyes have been opened, whose ears hear. They are no less sinners, but they've been granted mercy by the work of Christ. And the sower is Jesus. You get this picture of Jesus carefully casting the sons of the kingdom around the world, broadcasting them as seeds on fertile soil. Notice I said world and not church. A bad reading of this passage has fostered a bad approach to church membership. This is not about the church. This is about the world. Okay? The enemy, whom Jesus calls the evil one, or the devil, and we know him as Satan, likewise casts his sons around the world. So the picture that develops is that the kingdom's sons seem compromised. The world seems compromised. The plans of the Son of God, the work of the King of Kings, seems compromised because of the sons of the enemy that have been planted right alongside the sons of the kingdom. Yet Christ patiently awaits the harvest, the end of the ages, when He will return in power and judge the world. On that day, He'll send His angels to gather the sons of the enemy, whom Jesus refers to as causes of sin and lawbreakers, and to throw them into hell. The result... The world purified hosts the sons of the kingdom. These righteous objects of mercy will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. And that is a beautiful picture. The question, I think, is how do these four parables relate to one another? Ironically, I think the last two parables, though they're relatively insignificant and small, tiny in comparison to the parables of the sower and the weeds, are the key to understanding the entire chapter. And if that's the case, the literary brilliance of Matthew is on display here. The point of all four parables is the same. And it's clearly seen in the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. How is the kingdom like these? Well, although you might expect the kingdom of God to arrive in a spectacular display of military might, of sheer glorious power, you'd be wrong. 
The kingdom of God dawns upon the dark nations as of men as a baby, born in a cattle trough, in a barn, in an insignificant town, in an insignificant province of an insignificant nation. And the kingdom is established not by the sword, but by the cross. And the kingdom advances not in persuasive words, but in foolish words. Not by the sway of persuasive speakers, but the power of the spirits. Not by the tactical advantage of of political strength, but by the cross-bearing death of the martyrs. It is an upside-down kingdom. If you didn't know any better, you might think the kingdom of God were a disastrous failure by now. But watch and wait with faithful eyes and ears that hear and you'll see that mustard seed grow to become the tallest tree in the garden and you'll see that lump of flour leavened. You'll see the seeds planted on fertile soil bearing fruit 100-fold. You'll see the wheat separated from the weeds when harvest day comes. Because this is an upside-down kingdom. It upsets your expectations. It starts small. It starts humble. The first will be last here and the last will be first. As the kingdom advances, so do, it does so in a, in a hostile world, taunted by the enemy and, and his sons. In her midst are many that pretend allegiance, many whose love grows cold in the midst of trouble, many whose affections for the wares of the world compromise their allegiance to the king. But watch and wait. You'll see fruit born here. You'll see the harvest come. You'll see the mustard seed rise. You'll see the lump leavened. So when we began studying this passage, I suggested that it was like challah bread. Many braids woven together to make a delicious loaf. To see it, we had to untangle the threads, but let's thread them back together. The kingdom of Heaven is like a dusty floor of a lake house wherein a few followers remain to hear the teaching of their master while the masses on the beach disperse. The kingdom is like the few who are blessed to hear the fables of the kingdom while thousands of hardened hearts hear riddles. The kingdom is like a sower whose casting appears to be a series of embarrassing failures. Many seeds are consumed. Many others wither. Many are choked by thorns. Yet those planted in fertile soil, yield an extraordinary harvest. The kingdom is like a field sown with seeds and weeds. Though the work of the enemy might seem to have compromised the harvest, the weeds will be sorted and burns, and the suns of the righteous will shine. The kingdom is like a small seed which grows into a great tree. It's like a bit of leaven which leavens the whole lump. That's the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom of Christ that seems to be ever ready to collapse under the pressures of internal strife and external vitriol will prevail. The kingdom of Christ which seems to have failed at the foot of the cross will prevail at the return of the King of Kings. The kingdom of Christ which seems every generation to be fundamentally compromised by the moral failures of her shiniest sons or the world-loving, weak-hearted efforts of her supposed citizens or the orchestrated tyranny of the enemy and his sons will prevail when Christ separates the weeds from the wheat so that the righteous sons of glory can shine like the sun. Amen? That's the nature of our kingdom. Now, at this point, 
I was going to write a whole section of application about like when you get discouraged when you look on Twitter and you're like, what are we doing here? I was going to point you to these parables and remind you that we should expect this sort of thing. We should expect that the sons of the enemy are trying to compromise the efforts of the kingdom. I was going to talk about all sorts of things like that, but I don't think I need to apply this passage because the passage applies itself. And we're going to read that application next week, but let me read the verses I mean to you right now. If that's the sort of kingdom, if, it, if it's the sort of kingdom that where the righteous shine like suns in the kingdom of their Father, if it's the sort of kingdom that grows from insignificance to totality, if it's the sort of kingdom that will prevail despite all odds, how do we apply that notion? I just keep reading. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all he has to buy that field. If that's the sort of kingdom that looms on the horizon, how do you apply that notion? The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's how. If this is true, if it is true that the kingdom will prevail and the sons of the enemy will be destroyed and the sons of the righteous one will shine like the sun, if that's the kingdom, and if you believe that, you must sell everything to buy that field. You must sell everything to buy that pearl. Okay? Okay. Let's pray. Mm-hmm.